0: Well, again, good morning. morning. It is great to see you. Before we do jump into the Gospel of Mark this morning, I want to give you the the final report on our capital campaign. As you know, we were raising money the last several uh, weeks and months in order to uh, do a number of projects here at Grace. And uh, the two major projects that we began, the replacement of the roof and the renovation to our Grace Kids Wing, they are both now completely done except for maybe a few punch list items, uh, but it's looking great. Uh, We were able to raise uh, over $630,000 during those weeks, and so I want to thank you for your generosity, uh, for your prayers towards those uh, projects. And like I mentioned a few weeks ago, we still have some other projects that we would like to do, but before we jump into those, we're going to have a few town hall meetings where we can hear a little bit of your feedback and some of the things maybe that God has laid on your heart, so be on the lookout for more information on those meetings. Uh, But I can't wait for you to see the Grace Kids wing. If you want to go tour the roof, you can. It's really not that exciting, and uh, the liability's on you, not on us. Uh, But I I do want to invite you, after church, uh, to uh, take a journey through our newly renovated Grace Kids area. It is remarkable. We have a few deacons who can guide you around the space And so please, please, please uh, take a few moments to go take a look and see what it is that we've been talking about. Uh, Wait until the sermon is done uh, before you leave to go look, but uh, I think you'll love it. I know you'll love it. And this really is, I think, a monumental time for Grace Bible Church. I know that might sound like a a bit of an exaggeration, but I think this renovated Grace Kids wing really will prove to be a monumental day. I'm even wearing my uh, Grace Kids t-shirt to celebrate. Um, So if you're looking for a place to plug in and volunteer, I would submit that Grace Kids would be a great place to start. Uh, But this is a monumental time, I think, in the life of Grace Bible Church. And in Mark chapter 8 and 9, we come to a monumental passage a monumental passage here in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to invite you to open your Bible up to Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9. And we come now to really this monumental, pivotal passage in the Gospel of Mark. Here in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to ask a question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am. And thus far in the Gospel of Mark, chapters really one through seven have been building up to that very question, showing who Jesus is. But now, at this monumental moment in the Gospel of Mark, once Peter makes his confession, You are the Christ, we're now headed towards the cross. And the shift begins now to ask and answer the question well, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to follow him? This morning we see both of those questions being asked and answered. First, who do you say that I am? And then what does it mean to follow him? So grab your outline there in your bulletin. We are going to look at these verses a little bit out of order. And so you'll want your outline just to keep on track. But we're going to look first at that question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? We're going to see that Jesus is the crucified Christ. Then we're going to skip some verses and jump into chapter 9 and see that Jesus is the glorious Christ. And then finally, the resurrected Christ. And then number two on your outline, we'll jump back to the verses we skipped, and we're going to take a look at this cost of discipleship. What does it mean to follow him? So have your outline ready. Have your Bible ready. Go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 8. Let's look first at number one on your outline. Who is Jesus? The crucified Christ. Mark chapter 8, notice first verse 27. Mark chapter 8 verse 27 says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. So like I said earlier, the first seven chapters, really, of the Gospel of Mark, eight chapters have been building up to this question of who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And now Jesus is traveling with his disciples, notice to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, by the way, is a Roman city. It's a pagan city. There's a shrine to uh, the god Pan there. But here in this pagan land, we see one of the most monumental utterances to ever come out of man's lips. And it begins with this question Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? And notice the various responses. They said to him, well, some say John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. Others say Elijah, but others say he's one of the prophets. Remember, John the Baptist has been beheaded, and so some people began to think, well, maybe he's just John the Baptist, resurrected. Others said Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, or maybe just another prophet. But here we see various responses to that question, who do the people say that I am? This week I began to wonder if you were to go out on the streets or go to North Park Mall or wherever it is you go and you were to ask 100 people, who is Jesus? I wonder what kind of answers you would get. Who do the people of North Dallas say Jesus is? There is some recent research from Barna that says that the vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. So that's the good news. The vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person who really lived. But the bad news is that younger generations especially are increasingly less likely to believe that Jesus is God. And Americans are split about 50-50 on whether or not they believe that Jesus was sinless. That's the bad news. There's also more good news in the research done by Barna, and that is that there is an increasing openness among people to learn about Jesus. There's an increasing openness to learn about Jesus. So if you put all of this together, what it really means is that There's a whole lot of people who believe that Jesus was real. But sadly, they're really confused on who he is. But the good news is they're open to learning about it. And Grace Bible Church, you have the truth. You have the truth. This is an incredible opportunity we have before us with millions of people open to hearing more about who Jesus is. People are confused, people who do not have a saving relationship with him, but they're curious to learn more. And we have the responsibility to tell them. People are curious to know who Jesus is. Jesus asks the question here in Mark chapter 8, who do the people say that I am? And then notice he asks another question there, who do you say that I am? who do you say that I am? Notice verse 29. And he, Jesus, continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he, Jesus, warned them to tell no one about him. So here Jesus asks a second question. He first asked, who do the people say that I am? Now he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And the way this is written, the emphasis is on the word you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, acting as the spokesman of the disciples, confesses it plainly. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Here in the, the pagan land of Caesarea Philippi, Peter utters the most monumental thing ever to come from man's lips, this confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now Peter has the correct confession, but he still has more to learn. Notice verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Notice now there's this monumental this pivot that's going to take place in the gospel of Mark Jesus now knows he's he's headed to the cross. We're beginning now our journey to the cross and so Jesus begins to tell his disciples how he the son of man must suffer and be rejected and be killed. But this concept of a crucified Christ is a tough pill for the apostle Peter to swallow. Notice verse 32 says Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And then verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter, the same word. Why? Because notice Peter is thinking about this from man's perspective, not from God's perspective. In fact, he's thinking about this from a satanic perspective, right? Get behind me, Satan. Satan. Peter has a very short-sighted view of who the Christ is. He is struggling to comprehend this idea of a crucified Christ, a Christ who would die and be buried and suffer. Before we give Peter too hard of a time, I would submit to you that we too sometimes wrongly pick and choose the attributes of Jesus that we like and we set aside those attributes we don't like. In fact, a lot of unbelievers today and even Christians sometimes struggle with this idea of God the Father sending his son to die on a cross, a crucified Christ. Many liberal theologians have labeled it as divine child abuse. (laughs) But a crucified Christ is essential to the gospel that saves, the only gospel that saves. Now, maybe you don't struggle with the idea of a crucified Christ, but again, maybe there's other attributes of Jesus you struggle with. For example, we like Jesus' love, but we struggle with his wrath. Or at times we like the fact that Jesus died for our sins, But Jesus, don't tell me how to live my life. I'll take care of that. But what we see here in these opening verses is this essential aspect of the crucified Christ. And now, as we skip down to Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we'll come back to verses 34 through 38 in a minute. We see another key element of who Jesus is, part of his identity. He's the the glorious Christ. We see that he's the crucified Christ, and now we see that he's also the glorious Christ. Mark chapter 9, notice verses 1 through 4 to begin. And Jesus was saying to them, to his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And notice he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Here we see this picture of the glorious Christ. The transfigured Christ. Notice John Mark tells us that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on a high mountain. I believe that this high mountain was Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain near there of Caesarea Philippi. But there on this high mountain, it says Jesus was transfigured in their presence. You've probably heard that the word for transfigured here is the Greek word from which we get the word metamorphosis. Jesus is changed in a manner visible to others. His glory is put on display. You could paraphrase it and say, He is glorified in their presence. What they see here is a preview of Jesus' glory when He will ultimately come to establish His kingdom here on the earth. And the disciples get just a, a preview of that glory this transfiguration or glorification. Notice this is so glorious. John Mark tells us, I love this description. He says that his garments become radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I love that. We're also told that there on this mountain of transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear. Moses is representative of the law and Elijah of the prophets But I want you to picture the scene in your mind. Try to imagine what this must have been like for Peter, James, and John. You go up on this high mountain with Jesus and, and there you see a preview of his glory. A preview of his glory. You see Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine what that scene must have looked like? Can you imagine how you might have responded in that moment? Let's take a look and see how Peter responded in that moment, verses 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. It's an understatement of the millennium right there. It's good for us to be here. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. I imagine you and I would have been terrified as well to see Jesus in his glory. So Peter says, listen, it's good for us to be here. Then he makes a suggestion. He says, let us make three tabernacles, three shelters, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, as you might know, there's a little bit of background. Every year, the Jewish people celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a week-long celebration that looked back and celebrated God's redemption of the people of Israel out of the Exodus, out of the Egypt experience. But the Feast of Tabernacles also was a picture that looked forward to God's promises that one day he would bring ultimate restoration to the nation of Israel. And I came across a number of commentators who uh, believe that in terms of the chronology of Jesus' life, this event is happening just before the Feast of Tabernacles will take place. If that's true, it explains uh, Peter's sudden urge to build these three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, Peter sees the, the transfiguration, the glorification of Jesus, and he wrongly concludes that Jesus is right now bringing in the kingdom. He's right about being excited. He's just off on his timing. But in Peter's confusion, someone speaks some clarity, some truth into the confusion. Notice verses 7 and 8. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Or obey him. And at once... They looked around and saw no one with them except Jesus alone. You can picture in your mind's eye this scene once again. There from this cloud surrounding you on the high mountain with Jesus, the voice of God, the Father calls out and says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Obey Him. Do what He says. So here we see the glorious Christ. We've seen the crucified Christ. We've seen the glorious Christ. Now let's take a look at the resurrected Christ. Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Verse 9 says, As they were coming down from the mountain, He, Jesus, gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now, let's pause right here, and I want you to remember that along the way so far in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, a number of times after Jesus does something amazing, he tells people, don't tell anybody about it. And now we've seen a few times here in this passage, Jesus tells his disciples to keep quiet. But the interesting thing is that this is the last time Jesus will say this. This is the last time Jesus will tell people to be quiet, recorded here in the Gospel of Mark. After the Son of Man rises from the dead, instead, they will be free to proclaim it. And Jesus says to his disciples there, don't say anything until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And this mentioning of his resurrection then generates some more discussion among the disciples. Notice verse 10. They seized upon that statement. They seized upon that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Yet how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him, Elijah, whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So the disciples, once again, are confused. They hear Jesus talk about rising from the dead, and they've got questions. They seize upon this statement of Jesus that he will rise from the dead. And then they begin questioning, saying, why, why is it that the scribes say Elijah must come first? See, back in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3 and 4, there was this promise of God that a prophet like Elijah would come and his presence would suggest that the end of all things is near. So the disciples are trying to connect the dots between prophecies of the Old Testament and what Jesus is doing here they're confused, they ask Jesus questions, and then notice his reply in verses 12 and 13, he clarifies really two things. He says, first, well, Elijah does come. Verse 13, Elijah has come, and uh, this was fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist, who came to pave the way of Jesus' arrival. And John the Baptist came as a prophet like Elijah to get people ready for Jesus' arrival. But then notice again in Jesus' words, he's trying to help them see that it's been God's plan all along that the Messiah would suffer, would die, but would rise again. Prophecy after prophecy in Psalms and Isaiah that the Messiah would die and would rise again. I know this is a lot of information here, but to summarize what we've seen so far, number one on your outline, it really all boils down to this question, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks his disciples that question, who do you say that I am? And, And I ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe that he is the Christ? You believe that he's the crucified Christ. The glorious Christ. The resurrected Christ. The one who came to die to pay the penalty for your sins for my sins? one who's resurrected to life so that we might live the one who's coming one day in glory to judge the living and the dead and do you believe in that Christ if not i want to give you the opportunity the invitation right here in this room or watching online to believe in him to put your faith in him and believing to know that you're redeemed you're forgiven You're reconciled with the holy God. This is the only way. And if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is the crucified, glorified, and resurrected Christ, then what we see as we look at number two on your outline, then that confession has monumental implications for how you should live your life now. Let's take a look at number two on your outline, this cost of discipleship, this cost of following him. But first, I want to tell you a story about my daughter, Abigail. So my daughter, Abigail, is about 20 months old, and she, like many toddlers, is learning to speak. And like many toddlers learning to speak, she often kind of jumbles words and syllables together. It can often be hard, a little difficult to understand what she's saying. Uh, For example, Water bottle is blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Hannah and I understand, and the other kids understand when she says waddle," she means water bottle. So we go and get her something to drink. Uh, but also according to Abigail, her name is not Abigail, it's Aji. It's Aji. And early on, it wasn't even Aji at first, it was Aggie. Okay, here we go. All right, see, you're, you're proving my point. Um, so Chloe and Clara, when Abigail started calling herself Agi or Aggie, Chloe and Clara taught her to say gigum. <laughs> all right, here we go. So we got all the A&M people suddenly waking up. Uh, so if uh, Abigail's a little shy, but if you know her well, if you were to go up to her and say, uh, what's your name? She'll say Aggie or Aggie. And if you were to go up to Abigail and say Giggum, she'll say Giggum Aji. And um, it's incredible. And, and here's the thing. Uh, you can't say gigum without the A&M fans losing their minds, right? And what we're going to see as we take a look at number two on your outline is you can't say Jesus is the crucified, glorious, resurrected Christ without losing your life. Let's see the invitation to discipleship that Jesus offers here under number two on your outline. If you confess that Jesus is the crucified, glorious, resurrected Christ, then that confession should have monumental implications on your life. Your life should never be the same. Here we see the cost of discipleship. Mark chapter 8, flip back to verse 34. It says, And he, Jesus, summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here we see the invitation to discipleship. Now before we really dig into these verses, I want you to understand something. This is key for you to get here. And that is that salvation is free. Salvation is free. It costs you nothing because it costs Jesus everything. It's a gift. But what we see Jesus describe here is now discipleship, and discipleship will cost you everything. But it's worth it. Those who believe that Jesus is the crucified, glorious, and resurrected Christ, we are invited now to lay down our lives in discipleship and follow him. Notice Jesus' words here first, if anyone wishes to come after me. Notice that word anyone. This invitation is not just for the 12, it's for you and it's for me. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. Here we see this heavy cost of discipleship. Denying yourself, Jesus says. Saying no to selfish interest and ambition. Saying no to the idolatry of self-centeredness. And making every attempt to orient your life not around yourself but around him to take up your cross, this symbol, this first century symbol of death. To die to yourself, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, in order to truly live for him. This is the heavy cost of discipleship we see here. This obedience to the will of God is revealed in his word. But this is the true and the good way to live. Notice verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Again, keep in mind here, Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. He's addressing those who have already put their faith in him. And now he's inviting them to deny themselves. And paradoxically, he says, any person who wants to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel will find it. I love what one scholar says. He says, Jesus picked up his cross that I might receive the free gift of eternal life, but I pick up my cross that I might enjoy what we call the abundant life. Jesus picked up his cross that I might have heaven tomorrow, but I pick up my cross in order to enjoy a little bit of heaven on earth today. Here the invitation Jesus gives is to experience a life worth living. He says there in verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Nothing. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus here explains that there's no good, there's no profit in gaining the world, but in doing so, losing your life. Nothing. There's nothing that this world has to offer that outweighs the glory of eternal rewards in the life to come. And notice the warning Jesus gives there in verse 38 of being ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. The reality is, believers, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as you know, if you've been around grace My vision for you is not that you're ashamed when you stand before him, but that positively you hear him say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. So this is Mark 8. 27 through nine, thirteen. In this passage, there's really two major ideas, two monumental moments that I want you to see. First, we see this picture of the glorious, crucified, and resurrected Christ. And the first question I have for you is, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Do you believe, indeed, as the Scripture says, that he died on the cross for your sins that he was resurrected to life and that he will come again one day in glory to judge the living and the dead that you will stand before him if you answer yes to that question the second thing I would invite you is to see how the crucified glorious and resurrected Christ now invites you to follow him to live for him and there on the back side of your outline that's your one thing for this week is i want you to see here jesus teaches his disciples that they need to pick up their cross and follow him to journey with him in discipleship and i want you to ask yourself in what specific ways is jesus calling you to follow him maybe it's in your family life in your finances in your church involvement, and in your evangelism, and your workplace, and your neighborhoods. I don't know what it is, but I guarantee you, if you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus is inviting you to take up your cross and to follow him. And I want you to ask that question, how is the glorious, resurrected, crucified Christ inviting you to follow him? Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Father, we do confess that we, like Peter, like the disciples, often struggle. We tend to pick and choose those attributes that we like and lay aside those we don't. So, Father, help us to see this picture here in the gospel of the crucified, glorious, and resurrected Christ. Help us to respond to that call to follow him to pick up our cross, to die to ourselves, to truly live for you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, thank you for your love for us. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Spirit, thank you for empowering us and equipping us truly to live for you and only for you, Father, Son, and Spirit. God, we love you, we thank you, and now we sing our praises out to you. In Jesus' name, amen.